0: The thing about a rebellion is uh, th- there 's an indirect sort of insidious side effect of, of rebellion in, in that even if rebe- even if the rebellion fails, confidence in leadership is shaken uh, because rebellions they what they do is they plant fear and questions in the hearts and minds of of many who actually took no part in the rebellion so that 's what what happened was Absalom you know he spent all this time. Uh, uh, you know uh, drumming up his support and, and speaking poorly of his father David and and even those that didn't take part in his rebellion he began to plant that seed of doubt and and so then people after the rebellion you think you know if he doesn't want to want to if if his own son doesn't believe in, in him as king then maybe he shouldn't be king anymore And so Absalom's rebellion, now it died a a, a swift death as did Absalom, but the lies that uh, he spread throughout the land lived on because for years the crown prince Absalom had, he had spread doubt and discontent. You know, you remember we talked about he would say, too bad my father's too busy to hear your story because if if I were your judge, I would surely rule in your favor. And he he spent this time undermining his father's authority and trying to build himself up, up in the eyes of the people. And, and, and by doing that, you know, it, it actually in a lot of ways, it's sort of what we see in a lot of our politics today. There's a phrase, there's a word. Uh, anybody ever heard of, of a demagogue or a demagoguery? Uh, and if you're not sure what that means, that what that means is, is you're appealing to the desires and the prejudices and the emotions of the people rather than actually <clears throat> excuse me <clears throat> rather than actually using rational argument so a demagogue is somebody who appeals to your emotions and what he thinks you want instead of actually giving you any facts does that sound like politics in america and so that's what absalom did he never actually presented any facts to try to argue against his father he appealed to the people's desires and prejudices and their emotions and in so doing when that happens it poisons the minds of people and and encourages rebellion well inevitably some some hearts turned against david and hearts that he had tried to lead with mercy and wisdom and grace and as david was was resettling back into jerusalem some of those poison bitter minds continued to believing in absalom's lies and one of those Uh, people was a was a rebel who was named Sheba he was a Benjamite he was from the tribe of Benjamin his name was Sheba and this Sheba represented or excuse me he resented that a that a Judean king from Bethlehem was occupying the throne that he believed belonged to his fellow Benjamite King Saul he thought that Saul somebody on his family should still be the king, and he was also bitter that David had moved the capital out of the, out of the city of Gibeah in the, the, uh, among the tribe of Benjamin to Jerusalem. And he was absolutely convinced that David only cared about Judah because David was Judean. And he spread the word among all the other tribes saying, you know, David is a Judean, and have you noticed that all the leaders are Judeans? And have you noticed that all the generals are Judean? And, and the priests, they're Judean. Could, you know, couldn't he have at least left the capital in Gibeah to show some, make it look like he was impartial? You know, he said, this guy is not the king of all Israel. He only cares about Judah. We don't need him. So David, he's barely home in Jerusalem, and now another rebellion, another civil war breaks out. Sheba had been able to convince Israelites from outside the tribe of Judah to join him in this revolt, and Sheba's army, uh, as such as it was, it wasn't much of an army, but what he was able to muster, they encamped in a fortified city, and they braced for the war that was coming. Now, King David, he still had two armies devoted to him. One was his sort of his own private army, uh, and that was led by Joab. We've heard a lot about Joab, just a very... Uh, ruthless um, killer he was a powerful man a deadly warrior and he led that army and these were that army was the the veterans who had fought for David and Joab for 30 years you know ever since organizing in the caves of, of Adullam when David was still hiding from Saul and these were the men that were by David's side all this time and because they knew David so well they were completely devoted to him But he also had a a newer, less experienced army, and and, uh, the the general of that army was a man named Amasa. And knowing that that he would need every available soldier to fight this second rebellion, David sent Amasa. He said, listen, I want you to go organize your troops. Get your troops ready. Get Get your army ready to go. And he said, you have three days to gather them together and then meet Joab with his army. That was the king's instructions. Now, whether we don't know what all that that happened, but whether he walked when he should have been running, or or whether his soldiers were slow to get organized, or or maybe it was just a, a subtle statement of rebellion, Amasa was late to the rendezvous with Joab. He didn't arrive on time. Now, we all know Joab was never one to be taken lightly, and Joab decided to make it clear to everyone. When the king says three days, he means three days, no exceptions. So Joab, you know, when Amasa finally shows up, Joab goes up to him and he approaches his fellow general with, with you know, pertaining to be really excited to see him, you know, saying, Amasa, my brother, how are you doing? And when the general leaned over to hug his brother in arms, Joab then Grabbed Amasa's beard in his right hand, and as if to pull him down to give him a, greet him with a kiss, as it was common in their time, and and it was just giving him the impression that he was going to greet him closely. And, 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 but with, but in his left hand he had a sword, and as he pulled his beard down, he came up with a sword and he and he opened Amasa right up, just cut him right open. The Bible describes the this scene very graphically. It says in Second Samuel twenty ten. Joab stabbed him in the stomach with it, with the sword, so that his insides gushed out onto the ground. Lovely. (laughs) Isn't that just lovely? Well, and even then, Joab refused to finish him off, letting Amasa instead lay on the ground bleeding to death in front of Joab and Amasa's armies. All this because he was late to a meeting. I would say you want to be on time when Joab's around. But, uh, you know, Amasa's writhing body made Joab's point very clear. And his point was, we just went through a rebellion. You better obey the king's orders. This is not the time for half measures. He's, 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 He's saying anything less than obeying the king's orders completely, exactly as he says, doing the very best that you can. Anything less means death. And Joab, when he did this, he actually says nothing. I mean, why should he? His actions are speaking much louder than his words at this point in time. And instead, he just kind of rather coolly gets up on his horse and he headed in the direction of Sheba. He's going to go fight this battle. And as the troops were all making sense, trying to make sense out of what just happened, one of Judah's young officers pulled Amasa's body to the side of the road and he said, if you're with Joab, follow us. Well, no surprise, <laughs> they all went with Joab. You know, immediately, they said, okay, I'm not messing with this guy. And, and, and you know, one of the things, there's a couple of things I want to bring to this. You know, when, when the king or the boss or someone else got his place in authority over you, he says three days, he means three days, 72 hours, not 96 or not 75 if you're told to report at 8 o'clock, get there at 7 55, not 8 05. And, and you know, this is something that's kind of lost in today's today's world a lot. We can learn from Mamasa that, that time is important. Uh you know, and, and you know, we think about punctuality, and we think at first we think it may seem like an archaic virtue uh you know here in our information age, but the reality is in the world in which we live. Being on time is becoming more important, not less important. Because in the not-so-distant past, the uh, the 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 truism of business was the big eat the small. you right? I mean, that was kind of the way business used to work. That's not how it works anymore. You know how it works now? Now, the fast eat the slow. Because everything is at a breakneck, breakneck speed. Everything is going. And in a world where speed is victory, then time is money. And so when... When I show up late uh, to meet you and, and, uh, uh, for a meeting that I have with you, then what I'm, staking, I'm making a very clear statement that, my, that your time is worth less than mine if I'm late. And, and no one wants to do business that way. So be, be there, be ready, be prepared and in possession of the facts and armed for battle. But, but there's a much more important lesson here uh, outside of punctuality. That's kind of a surface thing. Uh, but but really, here it's about the appearance of evil. See what what you don't know. We haven't talked about this, but Amasa had had joined one rebellion already. He had fought with Absalom. Remarkably, Amasa actually lived through that, and, and amazingly, boy, there's a lesson here. He apparently was forgiven by David. That's a big that's a big. Deal Right there, David forgave him, but he not only forgave him, but he welcomed him back into the fold and even restored him to a position of great responsibility. So Amasa had a history already of going the wrong way and rebelling against this king. And if ever he needed to show that he respected David's authority, if ever he needed to desperately to demonstrate loyalty and full dedication to David's king, king, kingdom, then surely it was in the face of this new rebellion by Sheba. I really think that probably what had happened was, and Masa really wasn't that, uh, that uh, thrilled about serving David again, and so when Sheba came up and, and was leading this rebellion, and Masa went and obeyed the orders, but he's taking his time because didn't really, he doesn't really want to squash this rebellion because he's not too happy about David. But by being late to the rendezvous, even if he was loyal, he gave his enemies plenty of reason to doubt his loyalty and his leadership. Now, here's, here, you know I want you to understand, in your life, not everyone is going to immediately discern how wonderful you are, how, uh, how, how loyal and effective and virtuous you are. You just may have to, and I, I'll say this, you will have to somewhere along the way, uh, you're going to need to win some people over by the way that you act, or the way that you treat them. And, and, and when you're in that process of people questioning, don't give them proof that their doubts about you are justified. You know, if you show up unprepared or if you're late to work or you give it less than your best, you, you're, you will soon, soon learn uh, what David's son Solomon meant when he wrote this in Proverbs thirteen four: the soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing while the soul of the diligent is richly supplied. Well, Joab now and his army, Amasa is left behind. He's got the combined army. Joab leads them to the city of, of, of let me get it right, Abel-Beth-Machah. And, uh, and that's where Sheba was fortified, inside this city. And he goes there and he's going to fight this battle, probably going to lay siege to this city. But, uh, but the, uh, the, the, the rebellion was suppressed as easily as Joab could have ever hoped for. Because you know what happened? There was a a woman inside the city who did most of the work. Isn't that the way life still is? (laughs) That that, uh, there's still a woman doing most of the work. Although women are nodding their head, yes. And men, you can get mad at me if you want, but I just made points with my wife. So I'm just, no, I'm just kidding. (laughs) I'm teasing. But the hard work was done by this influential woman in the city because she... During this process, she convinced the people in the city, or at least the right people in the city, that justice and really even safety for that matter uh, was going to be with David and with Joab, not with Sheba. So once she convinces them of that, Joab's there with his army. Next thing we know, moments later, she tosses Sheba's head over the wall. End of rebellion. <laughs> so she just took care of it for him. Joab's like, well, that was easy. And so he goes out. The rebellion's over. That was that. And, and with this good news reported back to David, the king, you know, he must have thought to himself after all of this, he must have thought to himself, oh, finally, I can get a little peace and quiet. Finally, I can get a little rest. Finally, I can, I can go into this, this time of peace in my life that I've been waiting for. I'm so glad all of this rebellion, all this stuff is over. Finally, some peace. And for those of you that are college football fans, as Lee Corso likes to say, not so fast, my friend. Because 2 Samuel 21, that was the end of chapter 20. 2 Samuel, chapter, 2 Samuel 21 begins like this. There was a famine during David's reign that lasted for three years. So David asked the Lord about it. And the Lord said, the famine has come because Saul and his family are guilty of murdering the Gibeonites. Now, if you haven't read the the earlier history of of Israel, then you're not going to understand everything that that they're talking about here because in Joshua chapter 9, the story is told there about the, the Gibeonites, this tribe of people. They had come to Israel. They had pretended to be something they were not, and they had tricked the invading Israelites into sparing their lives, and it was an arrangement that Joshua and all the other leaders uh, of Israel had, had uh, ratified with an oath. They said, we will not kill you. We, you're you're saved. You don't have to worry about this. And even though the Gibeonites had achieved their survival through somewhat devious means, they had done this without being honest, the reality is God takes an oath seriously. Which, by the way, even today, be careful about vows that you make to God when you're not making them, you know, when you make them halfheartedly, because God takes our word seriously. He listens to what we say and he holds us to our word. And so, so, you know, it's, it's better not to make a, a foolish vow uh, than, than to make one at all. So, so anyway, they had made this oath with the Gibeonites and said, we're not going to kill you. You're safe. You don't have to worry And then uh, many, many years later, Saul broke that oath and killed some Gibeonites. Well, here they are now. We're decades later. This is not, you know, a year or two later. Decades later, all of Israel was suffering from a famine because of their previous king's sin. Which again brings me back to the thing that we've talked about in previous weeks, that we do not sin in a vacuum your sin affects other people. My sin affects other people. And, 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 and when we don't understand that, then we're, you know, I mean, until we understand that, we're just going to keep sinning and, and, and we're just going to be leaving a, a trail of destruction and sorrow behind us. And, and so anyway, here they are decades later, all of Israel is suffering from a, from a famine because of previous king's sins. And you know what? There is still... Uh, there's a way that unrepentant, unresolved evil comes back on us. Now, I'm not talking about things that you've done. You see, Saul, when he did this, he broke the oath, but he never repented of it. Israel never did anything to make it right. The whole nation stood guilty in in that sense. And and, that's, and so, I'm not talking about things that uh, uh, that that you are repenting of. But but I'm just saying that that we need to be pay attention because things evil things that we have done in the past if we have tried to just ignore it or we have tried just to sweep it under the rug it has a way of coming back on us if we don't pay attention to it so i say this to you anything that you can set right set it right you know don't don't say oh it's their responsibility they've got to come to me no no take responsibility yourself Anything that you can set right, set right. Anything that you can pay back, pay it back. Anybody you can apologize to, don't hesitate. Go to them, make it right, because that will come back to haunt you at a later date if you don't deal with it. Settle things, pay your bills, do not let negative things float around loose in the universe, they're they're bound to come right back and hit you in the head. So anyway, here they are. Saul sinned years ago. Israel is suffering a famine because of his sin. But the interesting thing here is that God did not tell David what needed to be done to make restitution. He just told him what the problem was. He didn't say, here's the problem. Here's what you should do. Instead, the the wise king went to the Gibeonites himself and he asked them, he says, how can we make things right with you for Saul breaking the oath and for killing uh, some of your ancestors all those years ago? And they looked at David and they said, well, I'll tell you right now, money's not going to do it. You know, you can offer us all the money in the world. It's not going to satisfy it. Instead, they said, we want seven descendants of Saul brought to us so that we may execute them ourselves. And that will pay the debt that Israel owes. Now, this is hard for us to understand because we live in a whole different culture and a whole different time Uh, era of time and and so it's hard for us to understand something like this but David understood this. This made sense to him because he understood the law. He understood oaths and and he understood debt and he understood retribution and and he held in high regard the expectations placed on the children of Israel and this request by the Gibeonites made it made sense to David and he knew better than to refuse or, or to even try to negotiate a better deal. He didn't say Okay, well, you know, how about six of Saul's dependents? You know, I mean, his descendants. How about that? He didn't do that. Now, the thing is, years before, if you remember, we've talked about this in previous weeks, David had made a vow with his friend Jonathan. Everybody remember remember Jonathan? You know, that was King Saul's son, David's best friend, probably the best friend he ever had in his life. And the two of them... They loved each other so much. I, I just really loved Jonathan because he recognized that God's hand was on David. And even though he was the, the son of the king, he was by, uh, by all natural and earthly appearances, he would be the heir to the throne. Jonathan recognized God's hand on David and he said, you're going to be the next king and I'm going to serve you with my whole heart. But in that, in that relationship, one of the things that they had done, it was near the time when they were had to split and they were never really going to really be with each other, not be able to see each other again. They made a vow with each other and, uh, and they, they promised each other to always protect each other and to watch out for each other's children. They made that promise to one another. Then after Jonathan's death, the young king of Israel, David, He honored that covenant, you remember, by inviting Jonathan's crippled son, whose name was Mephibosheth. You remember Mephibosheth? Great picture of grace there because Mephibosheth was crippled. And David said, you're going to live as a child of the king. You're going to be eating at the table with the king's sons even though you're crippled, if we have to carry you to the table, you're going to be there and I'm going to treat you like a son because of Jonathan, because of, what, because of my love for Jonathan. Boy, that's a great picture of grace. We're at the king's table, not because of our merit. And we're carried to the table like Mephibosheth was by the grace of God, by the arms of Jesus, not by anything that we have done. And he says, I'm going to treat you like my child. But anyway, Mephibosheth, David had kept that vow, and he was watching out for Mephibosheth. Now, Mephibosheth then was a descendant of Saul, but David knew there was no way that he was going to make restitution for one broken vow by breaking another vow. So Mephibosheth was not going to be offered as a sacrifice. Instead, David brought to the Gibeonites five grandsons of Saul and two of his his surviving sons, whose mother of these two sons, was Saul's concubine named Rizpah. And the Gibeonites accepted David's offering, and they hanged the seven men on the mountain as as the barley harvest began. And when we say hang them, uh, don't picture in the Old West hanging by a noose with a rope. That's not what it means. Uh, Generally, when the Bible talks about being hanged, it really implies more of being impaled on a post above the ground. So it's a horrible, horrible way to go. That's usually what it means. And so they, they were killed. And, and, and it's very interesting because, okay, now David, leading the nation of Israel, has repaid the debt owed to the Gibeonites. And you would think that the famine would now end. But the Bible makes it clear that's not when the famine ended. You would think it'd be like Jonah. You know, remember when Jonah was in the boat running from God and the storm was going and, and Jonah finally said, listen, I'm the problem, I'm the what caused all this, throw me overboard. And reluctantly, all the guys on the ship threw him overboard. And as soon as he was thrown overboard, what happened to the storm? It, it calmed down, right? So you would think, okay, well, David has done what he needed to do. So the famine would go away. But but that's, that wasn't the case. Instead, God had plans for this beautiful story. Because Rizpah, the, father, the mother of these two sons of Saul, now she knew she was powerless to prevent the deaths of her two sons. There's nothing she could do to stop that. But what she could do, she did. There's a great lesson for us right there. Sometimes we, we look at circumstances and we say, well, I can't, I can't do everything the way that I, that I see that it needs to be done, and so we don't do anything. And what we need to learn is learn from Rizpah in this situation to say, okay, I can't do everything, but I can do something. So whatever I can do, I'm going to do. And that's what she did. And here's what she did. Day after day and night after night, this grieving mother faithfully guarded her son's bodies. They were laying there. They were out there in the open in disgrace. She was not going to just leave their bodies during the day, she kept vultures from tearing away at the, the flesh of their bodies, and at night she sort of slept with one eye open to keep all the uh, drive all the wild animals away. And she refused to give up on her sons. She refused to leave them out there, uh, uh, leave their bodies out there on their own. She didn't care what anybody else thought, nor did she allow the sight and the smell of rotting corpses to keep her from protecting the bodies of the boys she loved. And listen. Uh, there's a great lesson in this uh, for us uh, as far as, uh, as intercession goes, because Rizpa's love for her boys, her vigilant faith even beyond death, is as powerful a picture of diligent, prayerful inter- intercession as there is in the Bible. And it, it's a it's a brutal and, and awkward story, you know, to preach. You know, it, it's a rare preacher who's willing to to uh, uh, lift up the complicated, common law wife of an evil king to illustrate what faithful prayerful uh, intercession looks like. But think about it. I mean, and this is the word of encouragement. If you have children that are running from God, which there are a lot of kids that are running from God, learn from Rizba and say, I'm not going to give up. Even when, they're, even when it looks like you think to yourself, there's no way they've gone so far. There's no way they're ever going to repent. There's no way ever they're, they're ever going to come back home. And the sin that they have, it just it's a stench that, that goes beyond anything you can imagine. You don't give up. You keep hanging on. You keep praying. And you keep believing. And you keep being the witness. And you keep doing what God has called you to do. And you never give up. You never give up. Nonetheless it's true even though the awkwardness of the story but she refused to give up on her children and her selfless dedication is a model for us modern parents well you know what happened was when david learned of rizpah's months long intercession for her sons he uh, he took action he gathered up the bones of saul and jonathan uh, that the that the people of Jabesh Gilead had retrieved after their death. So so they had the bones there, and then he gathered up the, the bodies of the two sons of Rizpah and he buried them all together in the tomb of Saul's father in the in the Benjamite town of Zilah. And this is what it says the scriptures say after that God into the famine in the land. Now restitution for Saul's sin had been paid and now the intercession of a vigilant mother had led to, the, to an honor, honorable burial in a concu- of a concubine's sons in the same tomb as the first king of Israel. So finally the famine's done. So no more rebellions, right? No, no, more, no more famine, right? Finally, finally, David's thinking, finally I can just prop my feet up. I can just go into the throne room and sit in my recliner. You know, he didn't. You uh, know, that's what I would have if I were the king. I'd have a recliner. And he and he said, I finally can get some rest, and and, and I can put up my feet for these last years of my throne of my of my rule here. I mean, that's what's going to happen, right? of course not. Enter the Philistines again. The Philistines you know, remember this, they hated David personally even more than they hated the nation of Israel. He had done a lot of things. He had killed Goliath starting off there. Uh, then uh, he had been responsible for many, many uh, Philistine soldiers' death. He had he had uh, fooled the, the king of the Philistines and made fools out of them. He had done so many things they could not stand him. So now David, you remember, this is the later part of his life and they're thinking, looking at him thinking, okay, he's already he's had to squash two rebellions. The nation's gone through a famine. If there's ever a time when a king is vulnerable, it's now. So maybe we can take this gray-haired David out now. And so David, when they, when they come and they attack and they're thinking this is going to be easy pickings, he tried to relive the warrior days of his youth when he so utterly dominated the Philistines. But it didn't work out so well. For him personally, because he had a he had a close call with a son of Goliath. See, Goliath wasn't the only giant among the Philistines, and there there was a giant named uh, Ishbi Binab. <laughs> How'd you like to have that name? How are you doing? What's your name, Ishbi Binab. Can I just call you Ish? Um, anyway, they had it, 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 he had David cornered. It looked, things were not looking good. It was a close call. He might die. And, and, and David's soldiers, after this close call with this giant, they began to plead with their king. And they said, please, please, just let us handle the war. If they kill you, that's the end of us. Well, David, you know, finally submitted and he allowed the younger soldiers to fight his war. There's a great lesson there for us. Uh, as, as I get older and older, which every day uh, by the way, getting old is not a bad thing because it beats the alternative right so every every day, I get older and and there comes a time you know when generals have to stay on the hill, hill and watch through the field glasses. Everybody likes the romantic idea of a general leading his army into battle, but the but the moment will come when it 's simply best to send. the the young men out to fight it's like an air force uh uh, officer once said he said there comes a time when you have to quit flying and start training pilots and and only after david relented and returned to camp you know what he found out when he said okay I'll, i'll i'll go to camp i won't go out on the battlefield anymore you know what he found out he found out that there were a lot of giant slayers in his army he didn't know that before because to this point, up to this, this war here, he had really been the only one to fight a giant. But when he got cornered there by Ishbi ben uh, uh, Abishai had killed the giant that, that had cornered him. And then later in the, t- in the town of Gob, uh, uh, Sibachai uh, killed another son of Goliath named Saph and then Ethanim brought down Goliath's brother in the same city there. And then when the battle moved to the capital of Gath, uh, the Philistine capital of Gath, David's nephew, whose name was Jonathan, toppled yet another giant son of, uh, son of Goliath who had 12 fingers and 12 toes. So the, David, David had killed one giant. But because he was willing to say, okay, you know what? I'm gonna let some other people come into the battle. I'm gonna let them do some of this stuff. What happened was, by killing that one giant, his influence on a generation coming behind him turned other people into giant killers. Now, here's a great lesson for us, especially for those of us, I don't like to call us old. We're seasoned saints, right? That's what we are. How many, we got any seasoned saints here? So you're going to, some of you are like, I'm not raising my hand. Don't make me raise my hand. I'm young. My brain tells me so. If you're like me, my brain writes checks all the times so that my body can't cash. Anybody here like that? But here's what I want you to understand. The enemy may have more giants than you know, but you don't have to kill all of them yourself. The Apostle Peter warned us in 1 Peter five eight watch out. For your great enemy, the devil, he prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. And this lion, the enemy of our souls, is relentless. He will never, ever give up in trying to bring us down. He's not going to quit. He's going to keep coming after you. He's going to try. You know, he's not that creative, but he tries the same things over and over again. But he doesn't have to be that creative because we keep falling for the same things over and over again. But that's a different message altogether. And, and here's David. And just when David thought he had had seen the last of the Philistines here they come again and when he thought he had long ago faced and defeated the biggest giant of his life more giants come and they start attacking now the youthful David was virile enough to bring down Goliath and as well as countless other Philistines in his early days of battle but now the aging David needed younger soldiers to come alongside of him and to kill new giants And there comes a time in every generation when an older generation passes the torch to a younger generation. But here's the problem, and here's what happens so many times. The the problem comes because often the older generation that's ready to pass the torch, they pass it, but they don't want to let go of it. And, and and we want to tell the next generation how they're supposed to fight their giants, and, and, but at the same time they're called by God to approach the battle and kill those giants in another way, you know? I mean, if David had been trying to tell all these these soldiers, now listen, if you want to take out a giant, here's what you got to do. You got to get yourself a sling, and you go down to this one particular brook, and you pick up five stones. You're really only going to need one, but you got to pick up five, because that's what we did before. And then you go out there, and when he thinks that you're coming at him with a stick, then you sling this thing around, and you nail him right up here in the forehead, and that's how you take out a giant. So a young soldier comes up and says, "I got this one." He comes at him with a sword, and David's, like, "No, no, no! That's not how you kill a giant. Don't you know how to kill a giant? Well, I've been killing giants since before you were in diapers, son. You better listen to me if you want to be able to kill a giant." Now I, I'm I'm being facetious, but what happens is instead of encouraging them them to move forward, sometimes. We want to hold on to our, bat, our past ways of fighting our battles. Is anybody here? Am I talking to anybody here? Anybody hearing what I'm saying? And what happens when we do that as a, and I have to put myself in an older generation now. I'm getting there. I'm on the lower side of it. I claim that part anyway. But, uh, uh, but what happens is those young giant killers begin to lose heart because they're not being allowed to pursue the battle the way God's calling them to pursue the battle. And then sometimes they just give up. I don't know about you, but I've known young people who were gung-ho and ready to serve the Lord, ready to slay some giants, but there was a generation before them that kept their hand on them and said, no, 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 that's not how you do it. And then they just ended up walking away from everything. We can't, we can't be that church. We can't be those people. Listen, we have to invest in the next generation. Christianity, the church, is one generation away from extinction. And I say that because God has no grandchildren. You're not born a Christian. You're born again a Christian. Everybody understand this? And so that means that my girls, they're not Christian because I love Jesus. They're going to be Christian because the grace of God reaches their heart and they make a decision to follow Jesus on their own. And listen, we have got to invest in the next generation because the next generation is what's going to take this church to a whole new level. Not just this church, but I'm talking about the church worldwide. And we've got to train that generation. We've got to disciple that generation. We've got to discipline that generation. But sooner or later, as we pour ourselves into that generation, into those young warriors that God has raised up sooner or later however you have to allow them to find their own strength you have to let them find their own place in the battle and 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 the the temptation listen never ever let yourself (laughs) yield to envy for the young giant killers that you've trained because it's easy for us to look at them and when they do something greater it's easier for us to say to get begin to get envious but that was that was Paul's disorder, or excuse me, Saul's disorder. Instead, be thankful for them. Instead, pray for them and say, God, I want you to use them to reach a hundred times more people than I could reach. I want you to use them to to do a hundred times more miracles than I've ever seen in my life, Lord. I want you to take them to places that I, I always dreamed about going, but I was never able to go. And, and remember that that when you invest in the future, uh, in future giant killers then the beautiful part of it is as I invest in them, then I have a part in every giant that they slay. I have a part in every victory that they win because the Lord used me to be able to pour into my lives, into their lives. You know, one of the things I enjoy at this stage of my life as much as anything that I do is I love sitting down with a, a young man or a young, young woman who's called of God, called into ministry, and whatever meager wisdom I have gained over the years, whatever knowledge I have, I have garnered, whatever I have in me, whatever I can offer to them, I love to sit down and pour as much as I can into them and, and so, that, so that they can see. Listen, when I first started in ministry, um, I'm not, I'm not, I can't even do the math real quick, how, how many years ago? it was a a, a while back. When I first started ministry, you know, I had all these dreams, all these things that I was thinking, boy, Lord, I'd love to do this. Lord, I'd love to do that. Lord, I'd love to do... Some of those dreams I've seen become a reality. Some of those dreams I've come to the place where I realized... That may not happen in my lifetime. I may not see that. But here's what I have come to realize is that if I can find uh, uh, some, some young people in, a, in another generation behind me, if I can pour myself into them, maybe they can go do the things that I didn't get to do. And if they do those things after I pour into their lives, then I get, I've got a little, little piece of that. And, and that's what we've got to Remember? You know, look at what happened. Because in, in, in those four final Philistine giants, David did not kill any one of them, did he? Right? I mean, I just told you all the names of the, of the young, young warriors that killed him. David didn't kill a single one of them. In fact, for three of them, he wasn't even on the battlefield. Listen to how 2 Samuel 21 ends. Verse twenty-two. These four Philistines were descendants of the giants of Gath. So these talking about these giants, and it says, "But David and his warriors killed them." David didn't. What did David do? He taught another generation how to fight. He taught another generation about the God of Israel that would be with them in their battle. He taught another generation by his example that giants could be killed, that you can do things that nobody else uh, uh, was able to do, that everybody else was afraid to even try. You can do it uh, uh, with the help of the Lord God. You can do it in the name of the the God of Israel. You can do it because he is with you. You can do things that you never dreamed you would do. And they learned it from David's example. They learned how to do this. And now they are the ones that killed the giants. But, But the Bible says... David and his warriors killed them all. See, this is the joy of my life as I'm able to invest in young ministers. It's the joy of your life as you invest in your children. It's the joy of your life as you invest in in other people's children here at church as you teach them as you love them as you show them the mercies and the greatness of our God as you do that the joy that comes from that is knowing that I may not kill that giant over there but if I can invest in this three-year-old he might grow up and kill it himself I'm making a difference you're making a difference when you invest in that generation. And I challenge you to, to come alongside of them and to walk with them and pray with them and, and teach them and disip, disciple them and, 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 uh, and do all of those things. And then when the time comes, release them and say, go kill those giants. I'm standing here behind you. I'm praying for you. I believe that God's gonna use you. And you'll have a part of the reward. And we'll stand, we'll stand together one day Someday in heaven, you know, I know in my ministry, there are a number of people that came through my youth ministry that are in ministry now. I don't say that, that means nothing about me. That's just the graciousness and the faithfulness of God. But one day I'm going to be in heaven and I'm going to meet people that they reached and I'm going to be able to look at them and say, and they're going to say, thank you. Because you had a part in investing in this man or this woman and they reached me for jesus so you're part of the chain of 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 things that god did to save me what joy is that going to be and and you know what the chain's going to go way back because i'm going to be looking at some other people i'm going to say you know what you invested in my pastor's life he grew up to be a man of god he taught me about jesus he showed me what it meant to be a pastor and i'm here because of your investment in him and he go back and he just keeps going back and keeps going back because all of us are in this thing together and as we invest in that next generation i'm telling you this generation that's that's alive right now they get a lot of bad press but i'm telling you this when this generation gets on fire for jesus They don't do anything halfway. And I can't wait to see what God does through them as we invest our lives in them. Amen. Amen. How many of you are ready to do that? You're ready to pour yourself into some younger believers, some children, some teenagers, some college-age students, and just see what God does. Amen. 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 Let's pray together. Father, I thank you, Lord.